Hey, Mel. Bri here. Gotta work from home today, because the whole family caught a nasty... Daddy! Hey, Mikey! If you're gonna puke, find the popcorn bowl! But my availability is 110%. Coincidentally, so is my fever. <laughs> Kidding. Mel, I'm so cold, but hot. Uh, but I'm gonna get you that budget. Just as soon as... Run. Mikey! Popcorn bowl! Press 1 to use Instacart and get your family's sick day essentials delivered in as fast as 30 minutes. Press 2 to keep working. Do not press 2. Just use Instacart, Brian. <laughs> Recorded live. What you know, and that's our theme for the last 12 weeks, Things I want to know. I want to know what makes a difference. There's a lot of things we can know in this world that really don't make a difference. But what we know is how you determine your destiny. So you have to have some things that you know that take precedent over all other things that you can know because they make a difference in your destiny. And I don't know about you, but I care about destiny. When I go on a trip, I kind of want to have a clue as to where I'm going. And I want to know when I get there. (laughs) But if I have no idea where I'm going, then I guess I would never know whether I got there or I didn't. A lot of folks live their life that way. They just live it out. So that's why the things that I want to know are things that make a difference. When we know Christ, and we know Christ accurately, and that's what we've been studying the last few weeks here, if we know him accurately, and when we know him accurately and rightly, Not only do we have confidence in our own immortality, but we live in a state of ultimate freedom. Because your freedom in the sense of how you approach life is completely contingent on how you view your and the confidence that you have in your own immortality. If you know and have a reason for that knowledge and it's based on the right knowledge and Jesus said if you know me you will never die that's immortal that's the way what we mean by immortality and the the more assurance that a person has that they are immortal or will be will put on immortality That's what brings to us that state of mind that gives us the freedom, the freedom that we all crave for, that we can live our life because we are assured of our destiny. So the reason for the way most people think about Jesus is how they view man. And let me say this, I've said it before, I think, 
if not here in one of the other classes, and I, they all run together in my brain. What you think about man is how you think about Jesus and how you think about the Holy Spirit. Those two doctrines are completely contingent on how you think about man. And if you get man right, you can't get God right. You cannot get Jesus right. Because if you understand what the world thinks about Jesus, he had to be God when he came because man is so rotten and so corrupt and so depraved that Jesus could not have been man. See, if you got man wrong, then you have to make something about Jesus that is other than what he was while he was here in the days of his flesh for a little while. But when we get man right, then those questions disappear and go away. All of the scriptures are addressed to those that God sees as capable of understanding what he is saying. Man by God is always looked at as responsible for his own thinking. Proverbs 23 and verse 7, which you don't need to turn to, it simply says, as a man thinketh, so is he. See, God has always looked at man as totally responsible for his thinking. He will not change how you think, will not alter your thinking, but has given us a standard by which we can determine how we think. So let's take a look at a brief little rabbit trail today before we get back to finish the chart and go to Genesis chapter 3 and verse 22. <clears throat> let's, let's get a, just a few clarification. I, I know there's a lot more than what we're going to be dealing with here, but just enough to give us a confirmation, a beginning point, so that when we look at Jesus and who he was while he was here, he became as one of us because we are capable of doing anything that God had in mind for us to do if we have a standard. And the Bible is our standard, and we can live in agreement with it. There is nothing that says we can't. Let's look at some of the Bible, uh, the Bible verses on this. And what did I say? 322, then the Lord God said, so who's speaking? Is that important? Yeah. Pat? That's just too confident. <laughs> All right. Behold, the man has become like one of us. When did man become like God? Before the sin or after the sin? Now you think about it. Don't be afraid to be wrong. After, after the sin of Eden, when man rebelled against God, it was after the sin that God said, who did I say was speaking? God said, man has now become as one of us. And the criteria was, he is capable of knowing good and evil. Are you capable of doing wrong? Are you capable of knowing good? Are you capable of knowing bad? We are all capable of both. 
That's what it means to be in the human nature. The Greek word sarx is the name for flesh, and it means the human nature, the capable nature of sinning or doing right, both. And it wasn't until after the sin that man took on the potential of being like God. Did you ever hear of the doctrine, the fall of man? I'll bet you if you open up your Bibles and read Genesis, it'll say the fall of man. Folks, that's not right. Man never fell. There was never any fall. There was a sin that separated man from God. But what they mean by fall is that man lost his ability to make the right choices. That man lost his capability. And man never lost his capability. He lost his relationship with the Lord, but that did not alter who man was nor what man was capable of being. Man never lost his capability. It wasn't until after the sin that man took on the potential of being like God in nature. Man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil, and now he might stretch out his hand and take also from the tree of life, eat and live forever. See, that was after the fall or before the fall, using the, your head, headings of your Bible terminology. Before or after the sin? After. Got to keep that in mind. It makes a difference. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden, and there's where the separation came. Now they were placed in the garden, man and woman were innocent, neither good nor evil. They were innocent. When they sinned in rebellion against God's authority, they were now removed or separated from where God was because God was in Eden. That represented the habitat of God. They were removed from the Garden of Eden, removed from the presence of God, and became separated from God. That's the dilemma. So the rest of history, from that point on until 4,000 years later, there was now, through Christ, the ability of having that relationship restored. And we can return back into the Eden with God's presence. And that Eden is the church. So he drove the man out. And at the East Garden of Eden... He stationed the cherubim and the flaming sword which turned every direction to guard the way to the tree of life. No way back. No way back. Not allowed to come back. Guarded. Keep them out. Cannot return. So for 4,000 years, man was in that state and the law didn't help resolve the issue it just led us to the one who could resolve the issue, and that was Jesus Christ. All right, let's go to another verse in chapter 4. And, um, and verses 6 and 7. Then the Lord said to Cain, Now you're all sitting down, right? The Lord said to Cain, who's speaking again? 
Did God know that there was trouble in Eden? Did he know that there was trouble between Cain and Abel? All right. Now, why are you angry, Cain? Why has your countenance fallen? Now, there's a lot of lot in there, but let's keep going. If you do well, <coughs> will not your countenance be lifted up? If you live right, you feel good. They don't need to be put on Valium. You know, they got these kids today doped up. You notice that in the school system? Almost everybody. You know, what? 75% of the kids are on some kind of drug. Is that true where you teach? Or do you know? You may not know. Not many. That you, yeah, that, that, that's maybe a key. How's baby doing? Kylin, you're going to keep her now? Yeah. I offered Chad, you know, 30 bucks today and he wouldn't take it. So he must be willing to keep her too. Yeah. Okay. So if you will, if you do well. So if, if somebody is despondent, you know, they need to be encouraged as God's. Now, who's speaking here? So it's important, isn't it, Pat? God's speaking. He says, if, if you're, if you're, if you do well, activity breeds good attitudes. Work breeds a good attitude. You have to be busy. Not about just busyness, but you have to work, have to be accomplishing something in life. And if you do so, your countenance will be lifted up proportionately. You'll be encouraged. If you do well, will not your countenance be lifted up? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. And its desire is for you. But because of the sin a few days ago, you're incapable of doing anything about it. You have become totally depraved. That's the first premise of all denominationalism and sectarianism today. Every Baptist, every Methodist, every Presbyterian, all of those religions all believe that man is totally depraved. That's the first rule of the five. The first rule is the total depravity of man. That's why we sing that song, I am such a worm. And I don't like that song because it's Calvinistic. I love the tune, but it's not right. Gives people the wrong impression. We are not we're not born depraved. We're going to look at some of that a little bit here. But you see, we need to understand that God said, "Who's speaking?" God is saying, "Cain, you've got a problem. You're looking sad down in the mouth. Things don't look like they're going well for you. But if you've got a problem, who has to master it? What's it say?" You do. You must master it. God says this to Cain after the sin in the Garden of Eden. Not only did he say in our first verse that you've now taken on the potential of knowing good and evil and of being like God if you choose to do the right thing, but you still have that choice. Here, he adds a little bit further to Cain 
and says, you are capable of mastering and controlling how you feel and how you act. You don't have to do, you don't have to be a murderer because you were born a murderer. We have so, the churches have so made, have made man so victimized that they can't help it. I am what I am and I can't help it. It's just the way I am. I just like to kick them. I hate that kind of talk. Wimpy, wimpy. You know, you can't get a fight out of anybody. Okay, so you must, God said this. He did not say, Cain, I know that since your mommy and daddy sinned, there's just nothing you can do about it. You're on the downhill slide. You can't do anything unless I come and do it for you. That's what, the, that's what theolo- all the theology is today. And it's just as dead wrong now as it was when it was started under Augustine. You must master it. You know, Augustine, who started all this mess, lived such a sinful, immoral life, he's got to thinking, you know, I just can't do anything about this. I'm so helpless. And so he established the doctrine of depravity of man for self-justification, and the religious world sucked up on it. That's where it began. We have to get back beyond Augustine and get back to the New Testament. But you must master it. Cain told Abel his brother, and it came about when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel, his brother, and killed him. Oh, I, I don't want to go here, but I, this is free. There'll be no extra charge on this. The Lord said to Cain, where is Abel, your brother? And he said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? Well, the answer is no. You're not your brother's keeper. He's his own keeper. And so politically today, they've added the same thing wrong to that little phrase as they have to the nature of man. And that is, we're not each other's keeper. We are totally responsible for ourselves, individual responsibility. That's what God just got through telling Cain. You are responsible for what you do. You can master whatever it is you're thinking about. You can get a hold of it. You can control it. Now do so. He didn't. All right. We have another one. Sometimes people say, well, okay, so I, I, I see that. Right after the fall, God did not acknowledge anything about a depravity of man. It's just not there. I can acknowledge that, someone might say. But what are you going to do with Jeremiah 17:9? It says, the heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. And so, if you're talking to a Calvinist up or down the street either way, they're going to talk, go to this verse, and they're going to say, see, man's heart is so evil, 
He really can't do anything about it. But notice what, what else is said here. I, the Lord, search the heart. I test the mind, even to give to each man according to his way, according to the results of his deeds. You're responsible for what you do. Let's go to chapter 5 and verse 23. Now we find out why Jeremiah says that the heart is desperately wicked. Now he tells us ahead of that verse in chapter 17 as to what produced him to say that. But his, this people, this people has a stubborn and rebellious heart. That's talking about Israel. Now notice the key here. They have what? They have turned aside. That's why their hearts have become desperately wicked in chapter 17. Chapter 5, he tells us what's going, the roots of what their problem is are the decisions that they have made, the things that they have done, that they didn't have to make those decisions or do what they did, but they did do them. It was their choice. They have turned aside and departed. That's what caused their relationship with God to be in jeopardy. It is not that they were born that way, as the Calvinists would teach us, but it's because of what they had thought and done that developed that disposition in them. So, there's the, there's the answer I, I would suggest to you. Let's go to chapter 14 and verse 14. I gave those to Greg this morning. I'll tell you, I talk about a student quick. I, I said, here are some verses I may be dealing with today that we don't have. And look, at he's got them all up there. Isn't that nice? I really think that's great. So is it verse 14, then the Lord said to me, now who's the Lord, who, who's speaking here? Okay, uh, is that important, Pat? Yes. Oh, oh, good. Well, I've got her three times in a row now. Three, that, that's perfect. So the Lord said to me, the prophets are prophesying falsehood in my name. You know, they're acting like it's me. They're prophesying or the word prophecy, the word prophetes in the Greek, prophesying, it means one who speaks for another. It doesn't always have to do with the future. It can. It includes that. But the word prophetes simply means one who speaks for another. If I send Mike over to Alex with a message to speak in my behalf something to Alex, and he does it, what is he for that moment in time? He's a prophet. Right, you got the picture. The prophets are prophesying falsehood in my name. They're teaching that they're saying things that have come from me that are not from me. I have neither sent them nor commanded them nor spoken to them. They are prophesying to you a false vision, divination, futility, and the deception of their own minds.
they choose to be and make themselves vulnerable to that kind of instruction. They weren't born that way. They have chosen to become that way. Let's go to Romans chapter 3 and verse 10. Now, let's, let's take a good look at this one. What then? Starting with verse 9. Are we better than they? No, not at all, for we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. When it says that all have sinned, he's not really talking about every individual has sinned. He's talking about the groups of humanity, both Greek and Jews, or uh, Gentile and Jewish, covenant and non-covenant people as groups are all under sin. As it is written, and this is another evidence of the Calvinist that what we said initially is an error, there is none righteous, not even one. But we have examples in the Bible of people who were. Job, Cornelius, others. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God, the trouble is that that's taken out of his context. Look at the very next line which undermines all of the thinking of those people that use that as a proof text. All have done what? Yeah, that's why they are not righteous. That's why they do not understand. That's why they do not seek God. Because they have done what? They have turned aside. It's by their choice, by their will, not because they were depraved and useless and worthless. They become that way because they have turned aside. That's the choice we make. Together, they have become useless. What's that little word, become? What does that suggest to you? It means that they weren't that way before they turned aside, but now once they have made a decision to turn away from God, to put him, rank him second in life, now they have become useless. That ought to be clear. There is none who does good who have turned aside. There is not even one. And then he goes on to describe more things that characterizes those people, and that's the New Testament, Romans chapter 3 following. So, you see, sin is the issue, not the nature or the capability of man. So the Lord Jesus Christ could become as we are in the days of his flesh for a little while because his nature was the same as ours, His capabilities were the same as ours and that he did not bring a depravity spirit with him because he came just as we enter this world, neutral. Able to go either way. We have that capability. Sin is the issue here in all of these verses when the individual does the wrong thing Eventually, it has 
a sour consequence. It is the issue. Sin is the issue. Not the nature or the capability of man. And that's what separates the Restoration Movement churches today from the rest of denominationalism. Jesus came in the flesh nature to demonstrate that man can live as God intended. Now let's go back to our chart, the big chart. We've just got a couple of things to do here, and then we can close. Right over here, we've been discussing the three, the past, present, and the future. And when you talk about Christ, you have to ask, well, which of those are you talking about? If you're talking about his origin, that's one thing. But whatever he had there in Philippians 2, it says whatever he had that gave him an identity with God, what did he do with it in Philippians 2? Who knows? He put it aside. That's what it says. He put it aside. It was like wearing a coat. He took the coat off so that he would be enabled to be like us in every way. That's Philippians 2 as well. He put aside anything that he had that gave him an identity with God and put it aside so that he could become as one of us in everything. I see a little bit of skepticism. Let me read. Um, let me go to there and make sure I've got it. I'm reading it right to you. I don't think that, um, uh, Greg, you need to go there. Probably. Uh, let me see here. Let me read it to you in Philippians two. Um, he did not read, this is verse 6, he did not regard equality with God a thing to be held on to. But he emptied himself of what? Of that equality with God. He emptied himself of what he's been talking about in verse 6. He emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, being made in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. For that reason, God exalted him, because as a man, he did what he came to do. And God rewarded him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name. All right. When we talk about the present, we're talking about his mission. He came into the world for a little while, in the days of his flesh. Hebrews discusses all the things that he came to do, that he had to be a man to do, and outside of that, there isn't anything else that he came to do. That was it. Now, let's read just uh, over here now uh, from the Gospel of John. How was it then that he could do all of his miracles? Well, he was enabled. We read last week in John 3.35 that all things were provided by the Father to Jesus. His works and his miracles were given to Jesus from the Father. He was subject to the Father. His word and teachings came from the Father. We read that last week. And even his disciples were given to him by the Father. And we need to read that one in John 18.9. John chapter 18. Just a couple here. And uh, you can go home where you don't have air conditioning, right? Yeah. None of you have air conditioning, right? It's fun. John chapter 18 and verse 9, Fulfill 
the word which he spoke of those whom you have given me. You have given me. And he's talking about and to his disciples there who became apostles in Acts chapter 2. But here he says, you have given me. I lost not one. So even they were given to him uh, by the Father. So not only his word and his teachings had come from God, his works and his miracles were given to Jesus from the Father. All judgment was given to him from the Father. Let's read that in John chapter 5 and verse 22. So we see that in his mission, he was able to accomplish everything possible that he came to do, but in order to do that, he had to be as one of us or it would account for nothing. Then, how then was he doing what it is that he did as far as the confirmation of his message and of his teaching. He's telling us in the Gospel of John, as Hebrew tells us about what it was he did, John is telling us how he did it. See the difference? One book is telling us what it was, that's Hebrews. John here is telling us how he did it. So in John chapter 5 and and, uh, verse 22... Not even the Father judges anyone, but he has given all judgment to the Son. So the judgment that the Son has came from whom? What does it say? We just read it. Were you, were you tuned in? They came, all that he has, all the judgment that he has was given to him by the Father. See, that's verse 22. Now we go to verse 27. And he gave him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. So he did not have inherent to himself the ability to perform a miracle any more than the apostles did. They were enabled. Jesus was enabled. He did not know what to teach until he was enabled to know what to teach and how to teach. All of those things, he says, have been given to me. And his his place and judgment was not by his will but he had been given the power and authority to make judgment by whom by the father all right so we've i think we got that down one more and even his name in john chapter 17 and verse 11 and we'll close with this one that's a promise don't often keep one John 17, verse 11, I am no longer in the world, and yet they themselves are in the world. I, and I come to you, Holy Father. Keep them in your name, the name that you have given me. So whatever he's talking about there, and that's a whole different issue, he is saying even what I have by way of name, where did it come from? The Father. We always want to keep a distinction between the Father and the Son. The Son is always subordinate to the Father. And whatever the Son has, he has it because where did he get it? From the Father. Everything that he did, everything that he has, was given to him by the Father. He had nothing inherent as man except what had been given to him. Folks, we have to know that. 
So even his name was given to him. So if while he was here in the days of his flesh, if he were God, why was he aided in the same way as the apostles? And John 1.18, we close. Don't bother reading that. No man has seen God at any time. A lot of people saw Jesus. He was not God. So that verse remains true to this day. Jesus, when he was here, while he was here in the days of his flesh for a little while, was not God. He was, he was as one of us, aided as were the apostles to do what he did and to perform his miracles and his healings. All of those things were gifts of God to him to enable him to do what you and I cannot do. He was enabled to do as providing a supernatural evidence for his supernatural message. Let's stand and sing our song today of of, uh, invitation. We have another week or two on this. It just never goes away. But when we're done, I hope you remember it. All right, we revive us again. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware.